Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Well, I think we're on. Fantastic. And uh, welcome to another edition of Word in Your Ear, coming to you from the Islington pub in London's swinging Islington district. Tis. As ever. And uh, thanks for coming. Brilliant. Now, the book we're talking about tonight is Elton John's uh, memoir, Me. What a great title. Me. It's so brilliant, isn't it? <laughs> and uh, it's just out, and it has rightly received the most ecstatic reviews. Uh, it's uproariously funny. It's splendidly self-mocking and it's crackling with revelation. I mean, who wouldn't want to know that Bob Dylan was so bad at charades that he was pelted with oranges and that, uh, that Elton John's management was instructed by Elton at one point to shoot down a promotional barrage balloon because it was advertising Rod Stewart. You need to know that kind of stuff. But it's also a book that it gives you amazing, extraordinary insights into why anybody would want this level of attention and success and what it's like uh, when they arrive. It's a terrific book. So please welcome the man who uh, deserves a lot of the credit, the eternally patient soul who helped put the auto in autobiography. It's the long-suffering ghostwriter, Alexis Petridis. So... Alexis, we, well, Dave and I first met you when you were the... Well, we were working at EMAP Publishers, who Indeed, produced yes. uh, Smash Hits and Q and Mojo and all yep. those magazines. And you were working... Or you were the editor of Select at one point, and then you were, you were on, on Mixmag. Uh, no, I was on Mixmag first. Mixmag first, And then right. I was on Select. That's right. Uh, and then, uh, under my brilliant uh, leadership, Select closed down within nine yeah. months. <laughs> within about a month, didn't it? That's Ran right. that baby into the ground, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's right. I can remember the leaving... The, 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 the final party was, was almost... Yeah. You, you barely, barely moved in, in fact. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Long and illustrious history, that magazine had, yeah. until, until I arrived. Yeah. And that long and illustrious and f- history and sin- brought and swiftly to an end, yeah. And virtually since then, you've been the kind of Guardian's main... Uh, yes. Yes, I've been the Guardian's... Main music critic. Main rock, rock critic since, yeah. I think, 2000, 2001. Well, so, a yeah. traditional question we always ask everybody was, what was the music in your house when you were growing up as a kid? And uh, what was it played on? Yes, more to the point, was it, you know, was it a wind-up gramophone? Yeah. Clearly not. <laughs> yeah. um, we had a uh, stereogram, as yeah. they were Yes, yeah. um, And the music I remember, my parents weren't that sort of madly into music. The first record I remember hearing uh, ever was um, Mouldy Old Doe by Lieutenant Pigeon. Oh, great, great oh, record. Brilliant, you. brilliant record. And yeah, what by happened? The Pigeon. Like, by The Pigeon, yeah. as they're known in Coventry, yeah. yeah. And a uh, slightly odd story. It was bought for me. I would have been very, very little, but apparently when it came on the radio, I used to get excited or something. So it was bought for me by my uh, maternal grandfather, uh, who died very shortly afterwards. And I became, for reasons I've never quite got to the bottom of, I became absolutely terrified of the sound of Mouldy Old Doe by Lieutenant Pigeon. That weird, you know when you're a kid, my, my, my kids do, where you just get scared of random, completely random things, for no reason whatsoever. So, you know, theme music from Doctor Who, uh, public information films generally, and Mouldy Old Doe. <laughs> and e- even the sight 
of the record would set me off. I couldn't, you know, but, but we couldn't get rid of the record. So not a successful present, really. Well, well, you know, God bless him, he wasn't to know. But, uh, <laughs> uh, but we couldn't get rid of the record because my, grand, my late grandfather had bought it for me and he was this sort of saintly figure and it was treated like a holy relic. So there you go. So that was the, uh, right. that's the first thing I remember. And everything else I remember from being young um, is sort of glam rock. Glam is the first thing that I remember. Uh, my, probably my earliest memory of anything is seeing Wizard on television, who I was also terrified of. Um, <laughs> the sight of Roy Woods in, in full thing, so that would set me off. But yeah, that's that. So, what's your first thing. memory of Elton John? My parents had uh, Goodbye Yellow Brick Road. And don't as sh- everybody did. As everybody did, you, by law, it was in the, in the 70s. Yeah. Um, and they had that, and Don't Shoot Me, I'm Only the Piano Player. Um, and so, that is my sort of earliest memory. You know, his music was around. But you wrote quite a bit about him, didn't you, in The Guardian? And you obviously, I mean, you know, we need to know how you got the job, really, as being the ghostwriter of the book. (laughs) But uh, what was the connection? Uh, I went to interview him about ten years ago, maybe a bit less than that, uh, when he did the album with Pinal, Good Morning to the Night, where Pinal sort of remixed or mashed up all his stuff. And I I went to interview him in, uh, in Vegas, and I was told by his then publicist that if I asked anything that wasn't about his new album, I would be thrown bodily out, out of the of room. Window. Which yeah. is a problem, because I was writing it for Guardian Weekend, and Guardian Weekend, with the best will in the world, you know, that's not the kind of feature they want. So I went and I'd met him once before, um, backstage at Hammersmith Odeon or whatever, and I walked into this dressing room, and he was there. The dressing room, incidentally, was bigger than the flat that I lived in in London. It was absolutely... Rooms after rooms after rooms. Anyway, and I walked in, and he was there... And he went, oh, yes, we, we met before, didn't we? Hammersmith Odeon. I said, yeah, that's, that's right. And I don't know whether he read my stuff or he just got his people to check me out. But he then went, uh, you've moved, haven't you? You've moved from London to Brighton. You've got, you've no. Got, yeah, seriously. He goes, you've got, you've got uh, two children now? And I thought, well, this is my sort of opportunity. If he's going to talk about children, I'm going to talk about your children, mate. So I said, oh, you know, how's fatherhood treating you, Elton Dad? I got on great, great interview. And he sort of asked me back after the show the next night to kind of meet, or before the show, rather, to meet, meet Zachary, who was, who was his only child then. Um, and we ended up exchanging emails. I thought, well, nothing's ever going to come of this. Um, and then he got sick, and I just sent him an email saying, oh, you know, I'm sorry, I've heard you, you know, under the doctor. And uh, get well soon, da da And he wrote back. And their email correspondence developed, and then we started meeting up. Sort rigging me. Go for lunch. It's very odd. I mean, it's, really? it's, it's, it's yeah. That is so really fascinating. I mean, the social contacts were they initiated by him or by you? Uh, did you drop him a line saying, "Help, thinking about lunch next Tuesday"? No, 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 no. Of course not. No, with somebody <laughs> like that, you know, you wait for the invitation. Yeah, right, but, okay, um, but yeah, yeah, he he became kind of a constant. Sort of quite, quite a but constant, that's really because it wasn't quite a close friend of mine. You weren't a, a right. committed kind of a, you know fan of his music or anything. Were you? I wasn't like a nutty. You know what I mean? I mean, you meet. I have now met yeah. as a result of this um, some fairly uh, terrifying Elton John fans. One of yeah. whom, I, I, I shit you not, has a mask like an Elton John mask. Um, that that I, 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 I'd struggle to describe what he looks like in it, other than to say it looks like the last thing you'd see before the person wearing it stabs you to death. Yeah. I mean, it's just <laughs> the most horrifying thing, you know? Um, and no, I wasn't... Or I, I was, went to see him at Madison Square Garden last year and sort of was introduced by uh, someone that works with him to some of his die-hard fans, one of whom went, oh, well, you see, um, uh, what you need in your book, I've worked out an astrological chart for him and Bernie Taupin, for Elton and Bernie Taupin, you should put it in your book. And I thought, probably not. Um, But so, yeah, there are some really... But No, I was not. I was a fan of his work, but not uh, a mad, keen fan of his work. But you you were then approached by him to to ghostwrite this. Uh, He was writing a book already. Uh, I had mentioned, not not in a kind of like... I wasn't angling for a job or anything, but he thought of writing a book. And he was writing a book with a woman called um, Ingrid Sishi who was, uh, I think, the editor of Interview magazine, or certainly she's a really, you know, mm-hmm. she's a really hot shit sort of New York journalist, and a very close friend of Elton's, who he described as a sort of sister he never had. And she was working on a book about him and had done some interviews for it, and then she died very suddenly. Mm-hmm. Um, I think she was, she died of cancer, but she was misdiagnosed mm-hmm. with something. And shortly after she died, a mutual friend of uh, Elton and mine, a guy called Tony King, oh, who yeah. is 
Elton's best friend and sort of a constant presence through his life, um, said, well, you know, are you going to do this book or not? Um, and if you are going to do it, why don't you get, why don't you get Alexis to do it? And so he rang me. I was waiting in for... <laughs> I was waiting in in the flat we own in London for the gas bloke to arrive to service the boiler. And the phone went. <laughs> Elton, do you want to write my autobiography? You know, you'd be very handsomely... Pro- yeah, well, of course. Yeah, that'd be great. So, yeah, that's how it came about. It was very... Very unexpected. I, I, I interviewed uh, uh, Keith Richards and I t- talked to him about his, the way his autobiography was written with James Fox. And it was just really interesting, the methods that people use. Right. And what they decided to do was that he couldn't remember a great deal. So James <laughs> Fox would say, now look, you know, we're going to do early school days. Mm. Tell me the people you remember around that time. And he would say, well, there's my niece, there's my auntie so-and-so, and my mate was in the maths class, and so-and-so. And he would then go out and find these people, right. interview them all, get their version of the story, and then go back. And that would, of course, spark all the memories. Right. Which I thought was quite an interesting It's a brilliant approach. way of doing it, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah but absolutely. I mean, Elton John's memory is famously very, very sharp. Yeah, remarkably I mean, under uh, the as we circumstances. Know, yeah, the things he seemed to remember about you, you know, and, uh, <laughs> if he wasn't tipped off by his PR. But what, what method did you use to, to construct um, this book? Well, I didn't know. You know, I've never ghostwritten anything before, and I didn't... When somebody says, oh, I'm going to do an autobiography and it's going to be very frank, you, I mean, they could just be saying that. Yeah. You have yeah, no, yeah. There's yeah. absolutely no guarantee that, you know, once they've got the advance in the bag, they yeah. might just go, oh, pff, whatever. So I didn't know what to expect. And what I did was we had to do a test chapter that was what they used to sort of... Um, you know, the test chapter was punted out uh, among publishers and whoever came up with the best deal got the book. And I thought, well, what should we do the chess chapter on? And I thought, 1975, because 1975, Elton John was, you know, unquestionably the biggest pop star in the world. Uh, he was also suicidally depressed. Um, it transpired. Everybody knows the famous story of him trying to kill himself, you know, a night or a couple of nights before the, his famous gig at Dodger Stadium. It transpired. He actually tried to kill himself before that, which he'd forgotten about. Um, he took an overdose of Valium while he was making... Uh, I can't remember what album he's making. Anyway, so I thought, well, this is going to be ripe for... And I went down to Nice to interview him. I think we did three days of interviews. And he just started telling me this stuff that I thought, there is no way this is going to make it into the book because it was pretty filthy, you know? I mean, it was like he was telling me kind of, you know, about his sex life and stuff like that and also all this, these mad stories about sort of John Lennon and things like that. And so I sort of said to I remember saying at the end of the day, well, I think we might have a test chapter here, Elton. Wrote it and thought there is absolutely no way this is getting past him at all. And then was sat waiting for the phone, sent it to him, was sat waiting for the phone call, waiting to go on holiday the next day. My in-laws were in the house waiting, wife and everything. And I thought, oh, Christ, he's gonna, this phone call's going to come and everything's going to be taken out and they're not going to like it. And the phone went. I was like, shit, it's Elton. Pick the phone up and he just went, you clever little bastard. <laughs> and that was it. And I was like, what, do you want anything? No, I love it. That's how it's going to be. And that was, you know, absolutely hats off to him. He, he, and I, did some of that stuff finish up in the book? All of it finished all up of in it. the book. The right, chapter is pretty right, much right. as you as you. So read you went to the edge of what you thought he would tolerate. Would tolerate yeah. And, yeah. He and, was and it became apparent that this was, there, was, there was no edge. Right, right. You know, I mean, the only... There were a couple of things that got taken out, but I mean, re- not really anything that. I mean, some things got taken out for legal reasons, but um, get away. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, we lost half a chapter for legal reasons, but um, for the most part, no, it was not coming from him. One thing he did do, though, I think this is, and honestly, you know, I'm I'm not here to say what a wonderful, what a, my close personal friend Elton John, what a wonderful human being, but one thing it did get taken out was he talked about his feud with Madonna and went into more detail than is in the book. And then when Madonna's last album came out and died on its ass commercially, he went, you know what, just take that out. I don't want to kick someone when they're down. Oh, really? Yeah, which I thought was like, I thought that's a pretty amazing, for someone that that's supposed to be this kind of, you know, yeah, constantly very celebrating spat, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, you know, so I thought that was, that was a... Yeah. Well, look, we, we, let's, let's just go through some of the, some of the main themes in, in, in the book. Yeah. We've, um, you know, we've got some pictures here just to sort of trigger. This, was, this is the most astonishing, one of the most yeah. astonishing parents. bits of the book. I, I didn't know, and I'm sure you didn't know, the detail of his parents' relationship. They absolutely no, they hated each other, yeah. They and really, so he really grew really. up in a house, didn't he? He was talking about, he was characterised by the kind of long, miserable silences. Yeah. 
And his father had this thing about how he he there was a correct way of eating celery. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. His dad had rules about everything. His dad had rules about how you took your school blazer off. Yeah. He was beaten once for for taking his school blazer off in the incorrect way. And he had a rule about how you ate celery, which is apparently not to make that much noise while you yeah. ate celery. Uh, with the net result that, you know, understandably so, he became a very nervous child. You know, if, if somebody's kind of constantly... And also, don't forget, his dad wasn't around all the time. His dad was in the RAF. So his dad would come back and then try and impose these rules and so on and so forth. But it's, in this matter-of-fact way, he talks about his mother beating him with a with a wire brush yeah, it's a to potty, potty train, train him. him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they had a very odd relationship, him and his mum. I mean, she seemed to sort of changed from being this kind of incredibly aggressive, difficult woman to being quite supportive for one period of his career and then became, towards the end of her life, incredibly aggressive and difficult again. Um, she died uh, while we were writing the book, uh, which seemed to sort of That's right, yeah. change his perspective a little bit mm. in that the floodgates opened a bit more after she died. Yeah, I'm sure. Um, and he, I think he was able to, he felt he was able to talk more freely yeah. about his mum. But yeah, it seems like a pretty... pretty but you say he's a nervous child. He's a, he's kind of a nervous adult as well. Is that, is that I, I think, fair? Yeah, I think he's certainly uh, keen to avoid confrontation, which given the reputation he has for, you know, constantly having feuds with people and stuff like that. He's not a terribly confrontational person. You know, I think if you grow up in that environment, and I, you know, grew up in a uh, not totally dissimilar environment, um, you do you do spend your adult life trying to avoid having arguments because arguments are the thing that blights your childhood. Other mm. people arguing is, is... But the most yeah. telling line, I thought, was you were talking about how he'd spent his entire childhood trying to be as invisible as possible mm. because he didn't want to set off one of his father's moods yeah. or his anger and, and, and upset yeah. his mother. He just sort of, just sort of hid in the background, yeah. which made me think that must have been one of the reasons why he was so desperate for attention and... Uh, yeah, I think know. so. And I think what, what you see, you know, when, when Elton John, the, the, the sort of the character Elton John emerges in 1970 and the sort of costumes start appearing and that kind of thing is this just this complete reaction against his childhood. It's a reaction against his dad wouldn't allow him to have kind of, you know, anything that smacked of being a teddy boy or anything like that. He wasn't allowed, you know, chisel-toed shoes or, or brothel creepers or a drape jacket or anything that his friends had. Um, and his dad opposed the idea of a musical dad, career. His dad opposed the idea of rock and roll. Despite the fact that he could listen to Mozart on the radio and then could... Yeah, yeah, much... yeah, but his dad was, was, was resolutely... You know, his dad was of a generation... Was of the generation that had their noses put out of joint by rock and roll. Yeah. You know what I mean? That he really didn't think it was music. Yeah. Um, his mum was a great rock and roll fan initially, and then I think Little Richard turned up, and I think even she thought he was a bit much. Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> um, so, yeah, I think it was... It, it's just... It's the sort of flowering of all this stuff without wishing to be, you know, do a sort of psychologist job on him. It's the flowering of all this stuff that he has to repress throughout his childhood, where he tries to be invisible, and then he becomes the most visible person imaginable. I yeah, think got it's marabou feathers on his It really, head really explained a lot to me, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really no, it, is, it is really interesting. There's his mum and his stepdad. Yeah, so, so parents split up, mm -hmm. and mother remarries. Yeah. The person who is, who is on the contrary, very supportive. Incredibly supportive, yeah. that's. I think that's in the flat... I think I'm right in saying that's taken in the flat that him and Bernie lived in for a long time. You know, is, is, uh, they didn't have any money. Uh, they, Bernie moved down from Lincolnshire. Uh, and uh, they lived in bunk beds in his mum's spare room. I mean, they literally... Which is obviously no way for two grown men to live. Um, but, yeah, they, they lived there for a long time. And uh, that's where their earlier songs are written and that sort of thing. They were a lot more supportive initially, I think, Durf and his mum, yeah. Right, yeah, they, right. They, once his mum got his dad out of the way, I think she was, you know, very keen. I think also he would say, Elton would say that by supporting him in his career uh, as a musician, she was sort of socking it to his dad a bit as well. You know what I mean? Because yeah, his dad right, was right, so right. opposed yeah. to him doing that. Yeah, yeah. Oh, there he is. So we, we, we jump ahead to, to Elton as kind of professional musician yeah. here in the mid-60s member of Bluesology Indeed. with Long John Baldry and yeah. so forth. I mean, what, what kind of future was he foreseeing for himself at that point? Was he thinking, I'm just going to be the piano player? I'm just I think so. I don't know. I mean, I find that era of his career fascinating just because, you know, we've heard the story of the swinging 60s told so many times by 
the sort of victors, you know, people who won at the 60s, you know. Yeah. So we know an awful lot about Paul McCartney and the, the yeah. Indica Gallery and, and all that kind of thing. And what I find fascinating is this sort of version of the 60s told by people who have their noses sort of pressed against the glass, which is absolutely what Elton, you know, was doing, as was Bowie at the time, Mark Boland, Rod Stewart, everybody who became big in the 70s, the early 70s, spent their 60s kind of looking in. Um, I don't know what his ambitions were at that stage. I mean, he was just a jobbing musician. And he played in all those sessions, didn't he? He with played the Hollies sessions. The Hollies sessions. Uh, he played uh, the Baron, Baron Nights. Nights yeah. um, and famously, he did the covers albums for yeah, Marvel that's right. Arch. Um, Where you had to pretend to be hot chocolate or something. Yeah, yeah he had to pretend yeah. to be... Uh, I think the first thing they asked him to do was, can you sing Young, Gifted and Black? Yeah. <laughs> so he said, you know, well, I am a sort of... Uh, you know, white bloke from Pinner, it's probably not going to make a tremendous amount of sense, yeah. but I'll give it a go, you know. And then the second thing they asked him to sing was uh, Back Home by the England World Cup squad. That's and he brilliant. said, you know, again, there's, there's three of us here and one of us is a woman, so it's probably not going to sound, you know, yeah. identical to the original, yeah. but, you know, you're the boss. Um, so, yeah, he did a lot of that sort of session work. And I think the interesting thing about this era, my theory is that this is the, the kind of era that forms him as an artist. He still sees himself as a kind of jobbing musician. Right. Um, Completely. He will, you know, play a session with anybody. Completely, you know, it, it, yeah. When I, you know, before we were doing the book, he would sort of ring up. I've been like, what, oh, what have you been doing this week? Oh, I've been in the studio. I've been in the studio. Well, who have you been in the studio with? Well, Monday I was in the studio with Queens of the Stone Age. Uh, Thursday I'm going with Ingelbert Humperdinck. Yeah. And it was like, Christ, it's a slightly odd selection of people. But, you know, this is what forms no, him. If you're a job musician that and you get a session, Completely. you go and play the session. If you get a gig, you get in the bloody van and you go and do the gig. Yeah. And he still thinks like that. Yeah. That's why he plays. And a lot he of was, people his generation do. The Stones yeah. are the same. I think McCartney's the same. So at this stage he was ready. Dwight. He was still Reg, yeah. Well, at what point does he become Elton John? He becomes Elton John uh, on the way back from... He decides that he has to leave uh, Bluesology because they hook up with Long John Baldry, who is this sort of incredible character. But the problem is that Long John Baldry has this huge hit single, Where the Heartaches Begin, which is number one in 1967. And Long John Baldry is a very serious blues musician, you know, master of the 12-string guitar, all that kind of thing. Let the Heartaches Begin is this totally cheesy sort of Mantovani-style ballad. And what happened was uh, the Bluesology couldn't play it because it's a very heavily orchestrated sort of song. So Baldry comes up with this idea. What he would do is Bluesology would be on stage and they'll be playing, you know, whatever, I'm your hoochie-coochie man or whatever. And then when the time comes to sing the hit, uh, Baldry gets a... Would, the band would stop playing and Baldry would drag this Revox tape recorder on stage and sing to the tape recorder while they had to stand there, you know, in these sort of cabaret clubs. And Elton had this sort of um, kind of meltdown on stage in South Shields, I think it was, where he was just like, the fuck am I doing? This is just... And the other thing that would happen as well was that, uh, obviously, you know, uh, because it was a hit, uh, women would flock to the front of the stage the minute it started and start, start tugging at Long John Baldry's mic microphone and this sort of thing. And Baldry, who was, you know, very openly gay and was clearly not in the market, would, would shout at them, you know, when this happened. <laughs> yeah. So he'd be like, the hard eggs begin. And they'd pull his mic. If you break my microphone, you'll pay me 50 pounds. <laughs> and he was just like, oh, this is... Elton stood there watching. The, and then one night he hit somebody with the microphone. He hit a woman. And I was just, this is no life. You know, this is not what I envisaged myself. So he decides to leave Bluesology. Uh, he can't work out what to call himself. Elton Dean, who was later in The Soft Machine is the sax player at that point in Bluesology. So he takes Elton from him and John from Long John Baldry. Uh, announces it to them, oh, I'm going to go off to be a star, and they just sort of laugh at him. And he leaves. And it's John Baldry, in fact, who tells him he's gay. Which, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. Well, he's getting married, he, yeah. He, he yeah. went all the way to... The, he came back... He said he was the only person of 23-year-old musician to play the Reaper Barn in Germany and come back virgin. Yeah, yeah. And so, <laughs> so none of that stuff was happening. He wasn't even aware that he was gay until Baldry said, why are you getting married? No, 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 absolutely. I think he'd fall... I think he had... Yeah, I, th I think at that stage he didn't, he didn't know he was gay. He hadn't worked it out. Yeah. I don't think he really had any yeah. sort of conception of what... You know, he said that this thing, Long John Baldry would come in and he'd go, uh, oh, I've got this new boyfriend called Ozzy Darling. He spins around on my dick. And Elton said, I would just... Ah, he did, what? He spins <laughs> around? Why? What, 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 what do you mean he spins around? Yeah. You know. Um, so, yeah, he didn't really have any sort of understanding, I think, of... of uh, of what it entailed. Yeah. <laughs> um, and Baldry, yeah, he was going to get married uh, to a woman called... Because he was Woodrow. living in a flat just around the corner from where we are. 
Is that right? Yeah, right, Furlong Road. Road. Yeah. Yeah. right. Just, okay. Just up there. And uh, yeah. And he was uh, he was he was going to get married because he kind of couldn't bring himself to walk away from her. Yeah. He? Again, the sort of fear of confrontation thing. Yeah. 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 I think that's, he was that's too polite to say too no. Too polite to say no. But the brilliant thing about when they have the they go to the speakeasy and Baldry explodes and sort of goes, you know. What are you doing, Reg? You know, you're gay. You love Bernie more than you love her. And he said, because he was in the speakeasy, uh, this massive row erupts and Elton's arguing back and, you know, I can't, you know. And he said, people from the adjoining table started listening in and getting involved in the argument. And, oh, well, I think you should do this. So because he was at the speakeasy, it was, uh, everyone else was a pop star. So he said he ended up then brawled in this ridiculous discussion with him, Long John Baldry, PJ Proby, Cindy Birdsong from the Supremes. You know, all <laughs> well, I think you should do this. I, you know, it's like bizarre. Yeah, absolutely bizarre. So he hadn't worked out he was gay, even though he was a big fan of Win- Winifred Atwell and Little Richard. Yeah, 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 yeah. You would think they're both quite camp figures, aren't they? They um, are. Really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a huge fan of Winifred. Atwell. And there's so yeah. much in the book about performance. About it. it's really interesting about him understanding what makes an explosive performance. In you. Yeah. And how, if you're a piano player, you're kind of rooted to the spot. I think the amazing com- thing, if you if you see uh, if you look on YouTube and you see footage of Winifred Atwell, she does this thing that he completely nicked from her. Of when she's playing, she sort of leans back and kind of grins at the audience. And this is this yeah. total, you know, yeah. classic Elton on stage move, like Crocodile Rock or whatever. And he's completely, you know, by his own admission, nicked it off her, which yeah. is sort of, uh, yeah. It's, it's we're looking at a picture now of, uh, of some people who were very instrumental in his, um, in the launching of his career as a, as a solo. So, first of all, at the top here, is it, is it Ray? Ray Williams. Ray Williams. Ray Williams. Was yeah. he, he was the first manager. He was the it. first manager. He was the person that you... When Liberty put this famous advert in that he responded to, that said, Liberty Records wants talent. Um, and he went to audition for them. He failed the audition. Uh, the same... I mean, they, they signed the Bonzo Dog Doodah Band. They signed the Idol Race. Uh, I think they signed Mike Bat as well at that point. It's quite, quite a good... Quite a good haul. And Ray Williams was the guy who, you know, as Elton puts it, as a sort of consolation prize. Um, when he went, well, you know, I, what am I going to do? You know, I can write melodies, but I can't write lyrics. And he said that Office is just piles of demo tapes because they've put an open advert in every nutter in Britain has responded to it and he sort of almost at random plucks this envelope out and goes oh, this guy writes lyrics take them home and it's Bernie Taupin's lyrics um, so, but, but you know, I think he, he, the, the envelope. Well, I'm not sure it was even open, was it? Well, the, there is sure some dispute. He, El, Elton says not. Yeah. I think Ray Williams says it was. So it, there is some sort. Of but whatever, that it. is the it's extraordinary, extraordinary sliding doors yeah. moment in his yeah. life, isn't yeah, it? Completely, yeah, completely. Bernie Taupin's response because Ray Williams also tried to get him to write with other people. Uh, he had other songwriting partners initially, and it just didn't work. It only worked with Bernie Taupin. We'll talk a bit more about Bernie in, in a moment. But we're also Dick, looking at a picture of Dick James. Yes, that is Dick James. The man the on, on, the, on the right there who got lucky twice. Yes, the luckiest man in, in Tin Pan Alley he was known as. He it, signed the Beatles. For publishing. For publishing. And apparently signed the Beatles by a sort of mistake because uh, somebody didn't turn up for an appointment. I think I believe that's the story that Brian Epstein went for an appointment with somebody. Uh, they didn't turn up and Dick James happened to be passing and went, oh, well, come and talk to me. Um, And then, yeah, I mean, Dick James signs him to a publishing contract. He's working on demos in in Dick James Studios uh, against the rules. They're working at night with a guy called Caleb Quay, uh, Finley Quay's uncle. Um, And uh, they get found out in an act of desperation because Caleb Quay thinks he's going to get sacked. He plays these demos to Dick James and Dick James puts him on a retainer. The problem is with Dick James is, despite the fact that he signed the Beatles... Dick James is a proper, old-fashioned, you know, Tin Pan Alley showbiz guy. He is the man who famously sings the theme from Robin Hood. Indeed, yes, yes, he had a career, he had a career singing career himself, yeah. And he is absolutely convinced that the way for Elton and Bernie to go is to try and write songs for Cilla Black. Yeah, yeah. Or try which, and write which was not a stupid thing to no, think No, not at all, no, no, no. And that's what other people in his company were doing, yeah. you know. I mean, the, the initial idea was they would be like... Uh, Cook and Greenaway, one of those yeah, yeah. kind of you know bubblegum songwriting yeah. partnerships that would you know wrote early Brotherhood of Man singles and things like that. And Dick kind of continually, what's that? Oh. The pub's uh, taking off. The there's mind, a car <laughs> yeah. revving up outside. Dick listeners. sort of initially, <laughs> Dick initially pushes them in that direction, which is a, a problem. And then his son Stephen becomes involved 
and goes, basically, you can't. These songs that you're writing are all terrible. You know, you need to write something from your heart. And it's him that encourages him in this sort of direction. Right. We're also looking at a picture of John Reed. Yes. Who was his his kind of famous, his manager and and lover. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the thing. It's a funny thing when you're ghostwriting something, because it's about kind of, as far as I can gather, just from the base of doing this book, it's about kind of melding your brain with the brain of the person that you're doing. And that can be quite an oddly intense experience. And there was a day when I was writing, I'd spent about, sort of, about 10 hours writing this book, it was a Friday, and I was writing about his first visit to America, during which you know he becomes this overnight sensation, um, he's fated by all sorts of his heroes, blah, 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 and also um, sleeps with a man for the first time, loses his virginity to John Reed. And it's such, it was such a sort of bizarrely intense experience just writing about it, trying to think yourself into what it must have been like for him, um, that at the end of it, I, was, I just felt like I was going mad. You know, I was just sat in the kitchen with a bottle of wine, just sort of knocking about, God, this is insane. And the, the, the experiences he underwent are so extreme. You know, no human being is built, is equipped to cope with, with what happened to Elton, over particularly over specifically in that few weeks that he's in America, and really over the next few That's years. That's so true. And, yeah. the, you know, the, the sort of amazing thing is that he didn't go off the rails sooner. Yeah. Because if that happened to me, you know, I, I would... We just That's send you such completely, a good point. You know, we'd send you completely mental. Just breaking records. No one, no, no one had had that experience before. No one done no. anything on that no, scale. No. Or, or, I mean, the Beatles had done stuff on yeah. that scale, but there are four of them. The four of them makes a yeah. huge yeah. difference. Yeah, exactly. totally huge, huge difference. Talking about Bernie Taupin, it's just so fascinating the way they write. Yeah, they don't write Everyone's got their own methods, but Bernie writes the lyrics. Yeah. And then I don't think they even discuss what the themes are going no, to be. No, 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 not at all. He no. simply sends sheaves of lyrics, yeah. and then Elton puts them up in front of him. And he's told me this himself because I've interviewed him. And then tries to write some music, yeah. and he does it very, very fast. If, if he hasn't got, and sometimes within... it's you know it's I'm I'm still standing, or it's yeah. uh, sometimes it's uh, Benny the Jets, or it's uh, yeah. your song, or whatever. Sometimes it's probably some really great lyric which we never hear of. Again yeah, there are there are examples. Work, of that. You know? But he said he's never he's come up with music that he didn't think was good enough. Uh, so songs have never come out. Uh, but he said he's never not come up with anything. He, t- 20 minutes, he gives it 20 minutes. 20 minutes? Really? It's hasn't incredible, come up isn't it? Something. 20 minutes. minutes. Yeah. 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 I mean, that is, you know, not wishing to sound, again, like I'm, you know... That, that's actual genius. I agree. That's literal, that is something moving through you. He has no idea how he does it. Yeah. It just happens. And that is not, you know, it's the opposite of that kind of ABBA approach where you craft and craft yeah, and yeah, craft exactly. and craft until it's... It just happens, and he doesn't know how it happens. And bearing in mind that's the way he works, if you look at that songwriting run those two have between 1970 and, so 76, when their partnership dissolves, that's genuinely extraordinary because you, you, they, they consistently write year on year two or three songs that are modern standards. That are, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, that are never absolutely. going anywhere. You know what I mean? We're going to be listening to those songs for the rest of time and our kids are going to listen. And that seems to me to be absolutely, you know, a genuinely extraordinary thing. But as, as, a, as a way of working, it's unique, isn't it? I don't I think there's so. another songwriting duo that no. work that way. And also Bernie has this ability to write lyrics as if they're about... Elton, as if they're coming out of Elton's mouth. So, you know, famously, he he keeps writing songs about Elton being gay before he comes out, and nobody notices. All the nasties off Mad Men Across the Water is a song going, what would happen if I came out? Um, You know, how would people react? Should I just tell them that? And nobody, you know, you read the contemporary reviews, nobody latches onto that at all. You know, he wrote songs when Elton's in the depths of his addiction about being a cocaine addict. And as Elton said, I had the brass balls to sing them as if they were about somebody else, you know. So, I mean, that's a kind of amazing... But I guess if you spend 18 months or however long it was sleeping in bunk beds together yes. in your mum's yeah, spare room, pinna. you know, you yeah. better get in pinna. You get a very clear um, impression of what the yeah, yeah, you be get like. quite, There's quite an intense bond there, you know. Yeah. Oh, the, troubadour, the Troubadour... Uh, we're being arrested again. The Troubadour Club in, in Los Angeles is just an amazing story in the book yeah. because... You know, I can't think of a single example of anybody else 
breaking through yeah. so quickly. Uh, again. So just just tell us that story. I mean, he just he, if I remember right, John Reed had, had refused a tour supporting uh, Jeff Beck. I think it was. Yeah, it was. It was, it was um, uh, Tony James had reviewed. Uh, it. Yeah. Oh, James, he, yeah. he was offered a gig with Jeff Beck. He didn't want to go to America. Yeah. Because his career was building very slowly. You know, in that sort of very early seventies way, and he'd been the surprise hit of the Crumlin Festival which was this sort of notoriously awful kind of rain-sodden festival at Fairport Convention and people like that played out, and he'd just gone out there and, and smashed it. Um, he was doing pretty well. He was getting played on John Peel, good reviews. He said, well, there's no point in going to America. No one knows me in America. And at one point thought he'd got out of it because Jeff Beck and Pete Townsend turned up to see him playing again at the Speakeasy. And uh, Jeff Beck went, well, will you sort of be my backing band? Um, they went and they rehearsed a bit together and the idea was the Elton John band which had then been formed with Dee Murray and uh, they would be the backing band Elton would get a little spot in the show and he would sing two or three songs which he thought was a very good idea um, and uh, Dick James uh, has this sort of meeting and finds out what the money is the money situation is going to be they're getting basically, I can't remember what it is it's some tiny percentage of, what, of Jeff Beck's earnings and uh, Dick James says uh, no, we're not doing it and he goes, I promise you, in, uh, in four years' time, Elton John will be earning twice what Jeff Beck does. <laughs> and Elton sat there going, like, what the fuck have you said? Oh, you idiot. Why have you... You know, he says in the book, it's like, I just thought this was a phrase that was going to haunt me for the rest of my life. I'd be playing in some pub, so there he is, the guy that was going to earn twice what Jeff Beck does. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, and there's this huge row. Um, he's eventually convinced to go. Then he gets there and <coughs> throws a huge tantrum and announces that he's coming straight back home um, because, it's a long story, but he just does. He's convinced to stay. He goes and plays the troubadour. And, I mean, it is astonishing. He literally, you know, he walks on that stage basically, well, completely unknown in America, unknown, yeah. and walks off at a star. I mean, he, you know, it, it completely transforms his career. That review, which is by Robert, that's in the corner, which is by Robert Hilburn, who was the uh, LA Times as rock critic? Um, you know, it makes his career. And he said he went from, you know, he said by the time he left, there, there were radio stations uh, taking out adverts in sort of, you know, trade papers, literally thanking him for coming to America. Yeah. You know, it's ridiculous. Yeah, and the band know. come and see him. I the think Bob Dylan comes and see him. Quincy yeah. Jones and Russell. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's Russell fated by all these people. And he's absolutely, Leon Russell, he's absolutely he's obsessed with Leon Russell yeah. and the band. These are the people that they model themselves on. Yeah. And they sort they're of in turn his up. You know, they're, they're in his audience. Leon Russell comes... He said he was playing on stage at the Troubadour. And people had said, oh, you know, Adetta's here and the Beach Boys are here. And then he said, I couldn't see anybody. I looked out and I saw Leon Russell. Because, you know, Leon Russell's got this sort of silver... Quite distinctive. Yeah. yeah, and it's like a pretty mean-looking yeah, guy, yeah. you know? And uh, he says that's what started him off doing this, um, he was so terrified because he'd seen Leon Russell. He's like, shit, what am I going to do? What am I, I've, I've got to do something. So he kicks the piano stool away and starts so doing handstands. Do hand I'll, I'll do a handstand <laughs> on the piano. That'll distract people's attention. That, that'll, you know? that'll, that'll um, so, yeah, it is an extraordinary story. Ah. So, you know, that, that, that then his career absolutely takes off in the United there, States. He's doing the Winifred Atwell thing. There you go. That's so, so you know, within Stadium. just a few years, he's gone from the Troubadour yeah. in Hollywood to Dodgers Stadium, yeah. playing in front of God knows how many people. Yeah. But still suffering terrible, you know, lack of confidence underneath yeah. it all. Yeah, I think, um, I think there's always an element. Everyone suffers from imposter syndrome. Everybody suffers from imposter syndrome, you know. Um, Go on, I, explain that. I think uh, whenever I press send on something that I've written, feature, I've been a um, professional music journalist for 24 years, I'm convinced that this is the piece that is so bad <laughs> that everybody is going to realise what a total well, you're fucking a charlatan I That's am. right. Yes. And, and you always be, were. Yeah. I you always just, were. It's been a terrible yeah. clerical error. You'll have to give the money back yeah. and you're going to have to go back to, you know, Amersham and work in a bank. And I thought this was just me being... Thinking, but I interviewed Nick Cave once and somehow we came into the subject and he was like, oh, yeah, every fucking album. He goes, yeah. every album 
is the one that people are going to realise what a fraud I am, how useless I am, and I'm going to have to go back to Australia. Thing. Yeah, why, I, mean, why you know, would I think you it's something we all suffer from, you know, and I think he, to a certain degree, did suffer from that. I despite. remember interviewing Paul McCartney and him saying the same thing. He said he put, really? put his, he said he put his single back because that week, this was in about 1982, both ABBA and the Human League had singles out. He said he just <laughs> was terrified that they were going to outsell him. You know, it's, 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 it's completely what? irrational, isn't it? Why does I mean, it it's like, yeah, but yeah. if you if you're not driven like that, you're not gonna you know you're not gonna keep going. Mm. And also, by the time of the Dodger Stadium gig, he had uh, started taking a lot of cocaine, yeah. which really didn't uh, help matters enormously. The other thing that happened that we haven't meant that I haven't mentioned while we were writing the book, um, we were about it took three and a half years to do, and about two years into it, I went down to see him in Nice, and I turned up at his house, and he's obviously sort of excited, and he said, "Oh, you've got to you've got to see this thing, you've got to see the thing that's turned up." Produces this cardboard box. And a former roadie of his has turned up at the offices of his management company with this box. He's kept a diary. Elton kept a diary from 1970 to 1976. He wrote up every night. So this diary covers... He's totally unknown at the start of it, and by the end of it, he's the biggest star in the world. And he wrote this bloody diary every night. He'd forgotten he'd done it. Um, I mean... And this guy kept it. How could you forget it? And also he had two passports in there, one of which was Reg Dwight's passport. Oh, brilliant. guy. And the other was Elton John's passport. He's got his photo and all this stuff. Um, And the diaries are absolutely incredible because he writes them in this completely matter-of-fact way. Played Dodgers Stadium. Went to the lavatory. It'll be... um, It'll go... Cheese uh, sandwich at (laughs) halftime. It's it's totally that. It'll be... uh, Mother You know, Saturday. uh, Woke up... uh, Watch Grandstand, yeah. uh, Hoovered House, um, yeah. wrote song, Benny and the Jets, not bad. Yeah. Um, yeah. Went to London, bought Rolls Royce. Ringo Starr and Mark Boland came for dinner. You know, and it's just, it's completely yeah. written in this. I think he was trying to normalise what was happening to him by writing yeah, it in yeah. that way. But I spent uh, a couple of afternoons reading through these, di- and they're just, it's just extraordinary. I mean, he keeps a bloody diary while all that's happening to them. You know, it's, it's, uh, that's brilliant. It's amazing. Yeah. It's also, he's also, we're looking at some pictures of him here with John Lennon and, yeah. and Rod Stewart, but, he, you know, he's always kind of sought the company of other. I think it's, Stars, te- I think it's telling. I think there's two different things here. Uh, you know, Elton and Rod came up at the same time. They both worked with Long John Baldry. They were both people that were on the club circuit in the 60s. That's how they knew each other. Bluesology took over from Steam Packet, which Rod was in as, as, as Baldry's backing band. But the other thing, you know, the, the friendship with Lennon, it tells you about an era when people like that were kind of more available. They were just around. You know, you think of John Lennon as almost mythic figure, but he was sort of around and about. He was introduced to him by this guy, Tony King, that we were talking about, who was an A&R at Apple. And by that stage, he was more or less managing Lennon. And they got on like a house on fire. I mean, they they, uh, they had a... <laughs> Yeah, it was throughout Lennon's Lost, The Lost Weekend in, in L.A., and, and Elton was sort of part of this fairly terrifying-sounding group of people that would go and get drunk and do drugs and raise a ruckus. And, you know, he had to get... And avoid, Lennon, avoid Andy Warhol. Avo- well, yeah, the, the famous choice. story about avoiding Andy Warhol. Yeah, that was, that's amazing. He, he, they were in, I think, the Showy Netherlands Hotel in New York uh, with just an enormous pile of cocaine on the table working their way through, and there's a knock at the door. And uh, Elton said, you know, when, you, when you're doing a load of coke and there's a knock at the door, the immediate thing is, it's the police. Obviously, that's the first door, is it's the police. And John Lennon goes, don't look. And he goes to the spy hole, looks through, it's Andy Warhol. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, he turns around and goes to John Lennon, it, it, it's Andy Warhol. And Lennon goes, yeah. tell him to fuck off. <laughs> and uh, he says, it's Andy Warhol, you can't tell him to fuck off. <laughs> and Lennon goes, uh, look again. Has he got that fucking camera with him? Because Warhol would always have a Polaroid camera around his neck. Yeah, he has actually. And he goes, get him to fuck off. Um, he goes, do you want him coming in here with a Polaroid camera when you've got icicles of cocaine hanging out of you? And he goes, oh, no, no, yeah, quite right. They hide behind the door until Andy Warhol goes away. <laughs> it's just like one of those moments where you would think even, you know, someone that's become as incredibly famous as Elton John would at that point think, 
what is going on in my life? How yeah. did I end up at this point? I've, I've With got John Lennon, John Lennon hiding from Andy Warhol. We're hiding from Andy Warhol. I'd imagine five years ago. Exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, living in Bond Oh, beds. the book is just, we haven't got time to talk about it. No, sure, sure, It's sure. May West and, you know, and uh, Simon and Garfunkel. There's yeah. The, there's, the, there's the Bob Dylan charades. Tell us, a, tell us about the houses. Right. Uh, we're looking at a picture that's of that. That's Woodside. What that's looks Windsor. like a, you know... GCHQ or something. <laughs> yeah. That's his place, That's in, his place Windsor. in Windsor. Yeah, he's lived there since 1974. He's got a place in Nice. Uh, he's got a place in Atlanta. He's got a place in Venice. He's got a place in LA. Is that it? Right. I think that's it. Yeah. So he's got a number of houses. So during his, his shopping mania, yeah, he used to famously, or he used to reputedly, turn up at the Virgin Megastore. Yeah. Pretty much every month or something yeah. like that. Yeah. And buy all the new chart entries. Oh, his, his, three his, copies. But what he did was then he sold his entire record collection. I, on top of doing that, he bought Bernie Andrews, I think it was a producer at the BBC's record oh, yeah. collection. Bernie Andrews had every single that had been released in Britain since the, the mid-60s or something really? like that. Uh, so he bought all that. He sold the lot. And that's how he started the old John Aids Foundation with that money. Um, but then <laughs> in recent years, he started collecting again. And there was this amazing, <clears throat> he said to me, oh, you know, I don't really collect in the way that I used to collect anymore. And I said, oh, well, he goes, I just really buy, buy photographs and I buy vinyl. And I said, right, how many records have you bought, you know, since you started collecting again? Yeah, a couple of years ago, about 20,000. I was like, That's, that, that is collecting at quite, you know, I've got quite a big record collection, but that is, you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, um, yeah he's, he's an a unrepentant uh, consumer. And started every day at Woodside in 1975-76, playing a fanfare, did he? Yes. To announce to the entire <laughs> staff that he was up and he was on his way downstairs <laughs> through huge speakers. Yeah, he had garden. speakers. He had a thing set up by I his bed it. and he would play a big fanfare. I love it. Um, and he said, I thought it was a joke, but if anybody was Again, staying... Again, we're getting back to the small boy who was invisible and... Yes, no exactly, yeah, the you know, exact you, opposite you of that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. straight line. This, yeah. is such a, this is such an <clears throat> action-packed story. You've got a whiz-past football. Sure, yeah. And uh, talk about the, the, still the most jaw-dropping episode yes. in his life. Which yes. I don't... You're talking about Tony King. Tony King once... Uh, the most entertaining evening of my life I spent with Tony King him telling me about Elton John's wedding and about how the international gay mafia yeah. discovered that Elton was actually getting married. Yeah, it is a very peculiar incident. This was, uh, yeah, this was, there were legal issues we're talking about this. Um, but, um, yeah, uh, he married a woman. Um, the, the bizarre thing Because, was, don't forget, he was straight, wasn't he, as far as the world was concerned. Well, yeah, that's the weird thing, isn't it? Because although he'd come out as bisexual, this. even though he'd said in 1976 that he was bisexual... But he came read the press Rolling Stone, didn't he, in 1976? This is 84 he got married to Renata. But even yeah. if you read the press at the time, when Don't Go Breaking My Heart is a hit, and he has come out at this stage, people are going, well, maybe him and Kiki D are a nice... And, nah, it's not very likely, <laughs> yeah. is it? Um, what, and it's just the most bizarre yeah. story that, that, that he goes to... Uh, record in, in Montserrat and uh, he, he turns up with his boyfriend um, and then develops a crush on another tape operator who's male both him and Tony King are both oh this guy's very nice looking and then he rings Tony King and goes oh you know uh, yeah I've got some news I'm getting married and Tony goes oh what's that lovely tape operator what are you gonna you know <laughs> oh yeah he was gorgeous wasn't he he goes now I'm getting married to Renata and there's just this sort of deathly silence on the end of the phone going you know but yeah, it was. It was a. I mean, all I can say <clears throat> is that it was a real marriage. You know, it was. They were a couple. Uh, they did what couples do. Um, but you know, you can't hide from yourself. I don't think ultimately. And I think that was the. He was very confused at that point. But know, he, he seemed very slightly regretful and felt the. I think he feels felt the, very the, sorry for her. He felt she had a very, sorry it was a very difficult experience. Yeah, for her, wasn't yeah, it? yeah. I mean, you know, she married uh, the world's most famous gay man, which yeah. is always going to be a difficult experience yeah. for a woman. I would have thought, um, but but fairly <laughs> soon after that, uh, there's the, the there's the sequence which is covered in incredible detail in the book, where he kind of he, it's rehab really, yeah, because he's addicted to I think uh, drink, uh, drugs, yeah. shopping, sex, yeah. Uh, he's food. Yeah, he's uh, bulimic as well. And what, and what yeah, I mean, it, it's, all those things have to be addressed. And it's unbelievable. <clears throat> the, the sort of initial, the, 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 the sort of binge that effectively sends him into rehab is terrifying. I mean, it's absolutely, I couldn't believe it when he told me about it. He locks himself in a house 
a house that he still has actually in London um, for I think two weeks doesn't eat lives off cocaine and brandy for two weeks um, sits around if he does eat he makes himself sick immediately afterwards you know he says in the book I, I basically spent two weeks sat around in a dressing gown covered in my own puke wanking <laughs> um, and this is what apparently in rehab it's known as a uh, a high low or a high bottom or something like that so you know under any ordinary circumstances you would be in the gutter yeah. But because you have untold amounts of money, you are not in the gutter, but yeah. you're in the same state as someone who would be in the gutter. It's it's terrifying. I mean, it's incredible that he's still alive. The you amount of cocaine he took. I mean, you know, you <clears throat> maybe some members of the audience have experience of taking cocaine. I don't know. He was doing a line every five minutes. Which is, you know, and I assume the cocaine he's getting is, is pretty good stuff. I mean, I don't think Elton John's getting any old rubbish, you know. So the fact that he is uh, still... Still standing is is genuinely. Oh, there's another very telling moment uh, when he <coughs> realizes he wakes up in the morning and discovers that he's bought a tram. Yes, yeah, in yeah, because he's so <laughs> out of it. He's so out of it. He bought a tram, yeah, and the tram had to be flown to his house. Home. <laughs> oh, it's just it's a it's hung tram. between two Chinook, two Chinook helicopters. helicopters. That's the only way they can uh, do delivered it. Delivered to his lawn. Um, he's going. What's this? A, what's this arriving? What, yeah, what's yeah, that? Have you bought it? You bought a tram, but he uses yeah. an office. He yeah. says, you know, he, uh, David, I think, uses it in office. And uh, he said, you know, I, I knew it would come in useful one day. Yeah. <laughs> so he went bankrupt? Uh, not quite, no. Um, he, he certainly... Uh, he had less money than he thought he had. Uh, this, again, is, is mired in legal... Right, you know, right. So but we're spending two million a month, wasn't oh, it? Oh, phenomenal yeah. sums of money. And, yeah. you know, being out and they... Uh, I can't remember the figure that he'd spent on flowers, but it was some insane sum of money that he'd been spending on flowers every month. And when the court case comes about, and this is a very, very open response, the judge went, "How do you?" What well, the, the the lawyer went, "How do you justify spending? I think it was like a quarter of a million pounds a month or something on flowers." And he went, oh, "I like flowers," which is obviously not going to win over the jury's sympathy if no. you say something like that, but that's a very kind of open response, you know. Now, this is when he was giving evidence in the High Court over mm. that case. I think they adjourned early on one day so that he could fly to Amsterdam and do a gig. Right, yeah. Which I thought was absolutely astonishing. Yeah. In the middle of a court case, yeah. you're going to play a show. Yeah. Because you must have to play shows well, I think to that, have the money... Yeah, to carry it on. I mean, at that stage, there was a, there was a point where... David was at home at Woodside and I think it's like the butchers or something contact him and go, <clears throat> there's no food delivery this week because your bills are unpaid. You don't have any money. And that's how they find out that, you know, yeah, excuse yeah. me, <clears throat> they're a lot, a lot less well off than they thought. Ah, almost famous. So, yeah, I mean, no, Mark and I were just talking about this earlier today that, uh, you know, they came this sort of dawning in, I suppose, in the, in the 90s that everybody liked a bunch of Elton John songs. Yeah. Yeah, this and they're really pointed out that... by this the inclusion of Tiny Dancer in the, in the film Almost Famous. I think the thing is that Elton, you know, he's never been hip. I think if you, you know, write the songs that make the whole world sing, you're always going to have a critical struggle to be taken seriously. You know, if you're a popular success on that scale, particularly in that era when the rock press is sort of going, you know, you're regarded with a degree of suspicion. Excuse me. Um, and, you know, even today I see it with artists like Father John Misty is a really good case in point, who sounds like Elton John. There is no getting around the fact, listen to I Love You Honey Bear by Father John Misty, it sounds like a bloody Elton John record. And yet when it's reviewed, people go, oh, he sounds like Harry Nilsson, he sounds like... They <laughs> yeah, drop yeah. hipper names, you know, when the God's honest truth is you can imagine Elton John singing those songs, you know? Um... And, but equally, I think people genuinely, you know, this is music that has been around us. Uh, certainly my, you know, for me, it's been around me my, my entire life. You know, I was born in 1971. And it seeps into you at some sort of primal level. And also, I think what happened with Almost Famous was it reminded him of the artist he had once been. Because by that stage, you know, he's done The Lion King, he's doing all these kind of... And... It reminds him of an era in which he was... Gigging musician. Gigging yeah. musician. Old-fashioned gigging musician on the circuit, hanging around with, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's sort of instigated by Bernie. Bernie hated the... I think it was Made in England was the previous album they'd made, which had sold millions, and went, no, we need to go back to doing what we 
did. And he made songs from the West Coast, which is a very conscious, you know, return to the style of his right. earlier records and is certainly critically acclaimed. Oh, hello. Yeah. And then he goes to Vegas, which is what this is. This yes. Is, uh, so the, the, the astonishing, you know, residency in Las Vegas. How long was he there for? I can't remember. Ages. Just so long. He did two years. separate shows. I saw that show. I think you saw it too, didn't I you? I saw both of them. He did this, and then he, this was the red piano, and then he did the million-dollar piano as well. And I interviewed was, him, and I think he had a, a, a whole floor of Caesar's Palace up the yeah. top, and I interviewed yeah. him, and it was really interesting. Because, you know, there, we were talking about this earlier. If you're a musician from that era, <coughs> kind of pre-video era, you were programmed to get up in the morning and go to work. Yeah. And if you... You know, he, he worked... Perfectly in a in a structure whereby at six o'clock every night you had to go yeah. and do a sound check or whatever, and at eight o'clock he was on stage. Yeah, yeah, and, absolutely. And uh, that kind of validated his life. Somehow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even, even though the money was nobody could do that quality of money, but I thought it was quite interesting. No, no, but it's, it's it's an amazing thing, and it kind of it's and also I think the thing about that show, particularly the Red Piano show, was it was really outrageous. I mean, it was it was his he deliberately wanted oh, yeah, something that was the not the standard sort of Donnie and Marie. Phallic inflatables on phallic stage. Phallic inflatables a video of. Uh, yeah. A, a transsexual, transgender woman called Amanda Leopold being sort of strapped to an electric chair naked with sparks flying out of a vagina and all yeah. this kind of thing. And people walked out. I mean, yeah. you know, fair play to him. He, I think he, he wouldn't say it himself, but I think he created... A, um, a sort of environment in Vegas where hipper people would go and play because they knew what he had done. So that's yeah. why you get Gaga going to Vegas now or, or Britney Spears or, you know what I mean, yeah. slightly cooler people and that standard idea of what a Vegas show is, yeah. which was up to that point sort of Donnie and Marie Osmond and, and, you know what I mean, sort of still kind of slightly Rat Pack-esque. It is also, <clears throat> your book, though, apart from its record of a, an extraordinary musical career, it's an extraordinary life. Yeah. In terms of the range, yeah. your range of experience, yes, and 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 the range of change encompassed within it, yeah. you know, which can be summarised in the picture we're looking at now of, yeah. of him with his husband and 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 two children. Yeah, you know, does does he ever reflect on that? I think he does. Yeah. Because <laughs> you know, because there aren't many people who. No, so many changes have happened, and they've been at the centre of so many. No, absolutely. Changes. I think that's I think that's very, very true, and I think he does reflect on it, and I think he is kind of aware of what a peculiar position he has ended up in compared to the way he started. Um, yeah, um, he, you know, he's a married man with children. That's a very odd way for Elton John to end up, and I don't think he ever had any intention of doing that. This is Reg Dwight. <clears throat> Absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's from the thing Pinner. that's... It's, yeah, Reg Dwight from Pinner. And also, it's just that sort of notion of all these... You know, while he's never been uh, hip in that sense, you know, he has weathered changes. You know what I mean? All these kind of stylistic changes have happened, all these things have occurred, and he's sort of somehow managed to stay at the centre of them. Yeah. I think because... Ultimately, because he's really interested in music and he's really interested in culture, and, you know, he's he's always got his ears open to whatever you know new thing is happening. And he's incredibly adept at associating himself with all the yeah, new guys. Because you know he? he's so very very keen to encourage people. He always yeah. says, "I was encouraged by you know Leon Russell or whoever." Yeah. Um, therefore, it is my job to encourage younger artists. And you know, he just he rings people up. He will phone up. Whoever, I don't know. He, the best one was a guy from a band called These New Puritans. I don't know if you're aware of They were quite a sort of avant-garde left-field yeah. band. And I've interviewed the guy from These New Puritans. And, you know, he's not one of life's great talkers. You know, he's not, not a big enthusiast. And Elton just randomly rang, hello, it's Elton John here. And how was the conversation? with him? Uh, you know, a bit desultory. You know, he was, I think he was just so, sort of taken aback by the fact that Elton John was on the phone. But that's what he As does. You would be. Yeah. As you would be. And now, the, you know, the... the Life is, you know, yeah. turned into a film. Yeah. So he gets to see that while he's still here, doesn't yeah. he? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Which is an amazing thing. I mean, the film is a, a fantasy version of his life, you know? And that's where the book is meant to come in because the book is the truth. Yeah. Um, you know, it is a sort of... Uh, it's very over-the-top. It's, it's, it's a really good film. Uh, it's a great it's a film. film. It's a terrific film. Yeah. But, yeah, it's a... Undoubtedly, it was quite a weird experience for him. Quite a weird experience for Taron Egerton as well, who had to have his hair thinned out. <laughs> <laughs> they took a razor to Taron Egerton's hair to make him look bald. And Elton said, well, he hated it. You know, he absolutely hated it. But at least his will grow back. 
You know, so welcome to my world. You know, so my, so, but now he's retiring. Elton. Well, yeah, in a manner of speaking, yeah. He's doing this enormous world tour, which yeah. I think has got another two years. Two years. To oh, right. Yeah. Okay. So, um, it's, so it's not, you know, it, it, it's, it's ongoing. But even when it's over, he's still going to go, obviously, and just... Yeah, he's never going to give it up. He won't, he won't, he's, he's not capable of for a week or something. Yeah, he's, that's the idea, is he'll play residencies. But, I mean, he is no more capable of not playing live than he is of not, you know, breathing. Yeah. Whatever, so, yeah. Right, so he's not looking forward to retirement because he's going to have more time to do his garden. Well, I think, I think like there that. is an element of that. I think, you know, if you see what his schedule was like uh, even prior to the farewell tour, um, he was doing, you know, between 90 and 120 gigs a year, which is a lot every year. Yeah. And I think the idea is to scale it down from that because, you know, he's 70... 72, 73, you know, I mean, it's quite old. Yeah. And, you know, he's not been in the best of health. He's in, he's in very good health now, but he's had a lot of kind of quite serious health scares, <laughs> which all occurred while yes, we were writing the book. There's no right to be alive, really. No, no, no absolutely. No, no, no. So, um, so yeah, uh, he's, he's on this sort of great victory lap. And it's an amazing show. I mean, I've seen it a few times. Uh, you know, it is a really uh, all-killer, no-filler live show. You know, it's, it's very much uh, banging out the hits for the last time. As is your book. Oh, God bless you. We call it your book. <laughs> well, it's not my book. It's me by Elton John, but we've been talking to... Would you please thank Alexis Petridis? This podcast was brought to you by The Word.